Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. Thanks for uh, jumping on here. We're early morning here for me. So you get a little red-ass JR today simply because I'm sleepy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So it's, it's all good, though. Life is good. Health is good. That's our biggest gift. We can give each other's health. So I'm feeling good, and... Uh, Excited about my, my proverbial day job. Business has been good there. People are enjoying getting us back to Wednesday nights at, uh, eight o'clock and, uh, seven central as we both know this our time zone. Yes, sir. So, uh, it's all good. Business is good. And, uh, some little barbecue sauce here, there, and yon getting ready to get ready to roll out the new seasoning. Can't wait. Yeah, it's been a while to get that handled. It's a big project. You know, people think you just order it and it'll be there tomorrow. And they, we, that's not the way it works, unfortunately, but we're going to get, uh, our seasoning is we got a shipping date, having it made now in Wichita. So it's an easy ship for us right now. I 35. So it's a good deal for us in that regard. So but everything's good. Everything's pretty good. I know you're busy and, uh, with the 800 podcasts a week, <laughs> you ain't, you don't hire anybody else. <laughs> you gotta have somebody on the, on the hook. Uh, so it's all good, man. I mean, uh, I'm blessed that things are as good. I'm re-recording this from Oklahoma and I'm going to be staying here a little bit more, which is good. I enjoy my backyard and my buddies and all that good stuff. Certainly not uh, overriding the beach. It's just a different, like different love. So it's, uh, working out pretty good, man. All, all good. And it she had an interesting show today. Uh, these are interesting points of view to me. These shows like this with the Paul Levesque, triple H Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Jean Paul Levesque and all these things. So it's a good example that where you can get too gimmicky and the gimmicks. And the packaging over 
override the talent, uh, the raw talent. And the thing that I'll, I think at the end of the show, we'll probably say that he was triple H is brave enough to reinvent himself. And he did successfully, you know, so it's, uh, it should be a fun, uh, fun, uh, uh, look at his career, which is pretty phenomenal actually, when you think about it. So all good. He can't be judged just on who he married. Right. That ain't fair. They can say the same thing about you. Conrad married a flair. It's in his, you know, I'm well, kidding. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You can't judge a man or a woman by who they marry. It's not fair. So anyway, all good, buddy. All good. So, uh, let's get rolling. I'm excited to talk about it. It's Hunter Hearst Helmsley's 1995 and 1996. And of course, we're talking about him because just a couple of days ago, uh, as you and I are uh, dropping this episode, uh, Mr. Levesque turned 52 years old. So 95, uh, really begins for triple H as we know him these days in WCW at the time he's working under the name Jean Paul Levesque. And, uh, the story was always that Eric Bischoff offered him a two year deal. And I think Paul just wanted a one year deal because his goal was to wind up in the world wrestling federation. He grew up in the Northeast, of course, and he was trained by killer Kowalski. So it probably makes sense that his goal was to wind up with the WWF, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was never, never a doubt. You know, he grew up in New Hampshire and through the heart of, uh, WWE territory. And then Kowalski had this great ties roots back into the company. So that was not a surprise him wanting to come to WWE, but you know, come on. A lot of guys who want to come to WWE in that era, uh, and still do. So, uh, but he was, I first saw him, I think in WCW, I always thought he was a little bit ahead of his game as far as fundamental soundness and his skill set was concerned. He was trained very well and he was a true student of the game and that helped him progress, uh, at a much more rapid rate than a lot of guys. And plus the other thing about it, he didn't have an ex-wife. He didn't have an ongoing wife. He didn't do drugs. He didn't even drink. So consequently he was kind of high on your list of guys to keep an eye on because he didn't bring with him any bad habits. So, uh, he was just, you could tell that he was going to be a lifer now to what level he was going to get and attain and achieve remained to be seen, but you could tell he had special traits and no bad habits that would prevent him from growing. Did you see any of his WCW stuff? Were you watching their program at all? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw quite a bit of his work. I was uh, watching a lot of their product in those days. Um, but he, yeah, I, I always thought he was someone to keep an eye on and, you know, he's six, four that bode well for him. Yeah. Uh, he's smart. And again, that's, I can't use that term student of the game enough because if anybody that we could talk about on our show here was a true student of the game and there were others, don't get me wrong. Right. But he was, he would be at the, right at the top of my list. I can't think of anyone that would, would trump him, uh, with, uh, being, having that descriptor student of the game. And, uh, I think you know, all those nicknames came from that, those type deals, you know, I called him, he's best in the game, or then he became the game. I gave the nickname cerebral assassin. Um, uh, and that became a stuck. 
So he was a special talent. You just, you knew he was going to go far, but not, you'd not real, you'd not determined how far, but it was pretty, pretty much said and understood WWE was going to be his eventual destination. Well, it is, uh, he's going to give notice on January 10th, Meltzer would write, uh, that he'd be leaving for the WWF, turning down a contract believed to be between 1500 and $1,800 per week. Apparently Levesque's decision was based on a track record of WWF versus WCW when it comes to creating new superstars and felt that even though WCW had plans to make him and Steve Regal, the tag champs with Sherry as their manager feuding with a babyface Harlem heat in 95. He'd take his chances without the guaranteed money since Titan is obviously going to push new blood this year as hard as it can. You know, Jim, it's been said a lot in business that timing is everything. And I, I got to think, I mean, obviously we know with the benefit of hindsight, he made the right call, but even at the time, if you felt like maybe my upside here in the next year or so is a tag champ with Steve Regal taking on Harlem heat or. I could roll the dice and get in on what the WWF was calling the new generation. He might fit the bill along with guys like one, two, three kid and diesel and razor and Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> yeah, I, he was, uh, he was, he was brave enough to, to forsake what wasn't really an overwhelming downside guarantee. You know, he wasn't, he was he wasn't walking away from you know, six figures plus, plus, plus he's walking away from 1500 a week. So I don't know how much of a gamble it was, but, uh, you know, we, we believe we had high hopes in him. We, uh, at WW JJ was, I think JJ Dillon actually signed him, but it wasn't like it was a recruiting thing he, he gave us notice, came to us said, I'd like to go to work. So I think, I think JJ closed, closed that deal before he left. Then I took, took over after that. Uh, and I remember uh, his first major contract was for a million dollars a year downside. That did not come right away. Right. But, uh, Vince saw early on, you know, make sure we take care of this guy. He's going to be a player. I believe And I, I agreed, obviously, but whether I agreed or I didn't agree, it didn't matter. Uh, the boss, that's what he wanted to do. <clears throat> so I remember we we're sitting on an anvil case in the back of the Evansville, Indiana uh, arena when we find got the paperwork all in finalized everything. And he signed that made Vince happy, made Hunter happy. And for him and for Hunter, I think the main thing it did was it validated his work and his dedication. And, uh, he, I think he, he needed that at that point in time. So in other words, by paying him a million dollars a year, which was about 19,000 a week. It kind of blew that $1,500 a week deal away. You can, you know, if you get me my math on that deal and, uh, uh, it let him see that he, he, he had arrived. He, the company had great confidence in him at that point in time. That was a few years later. We'll get to that, but he, uh, he, I don't know how big a gamble it was. He knew that Vince liked him because he's a wrestling heel and not a, and then he became more of a brutal physical got bigger. He got bigger, physically bigger. Uh, but he was resting heel in the beginning and there's always going to be a, a premium on those guys. So, uh, yeah, he was, he, he knew what he wanted and he's a smart guy. Hence a cerebral assassin thing. 
I do want to talk about the timing, you know, because a year later, a little more, well, it's real close to a year later, two of his, what would become really close friends, uh, diesel and razor Ramon, they're going to leave the WWF simply because WCW has guaranteed money. So it's fascinating to look back and think just a year prior, here's Hunter leaving guaranteed money to go towards an opportunity. And obviously that gamble paid off for him. Yep. Um, but I, it, it probably just came down to a math problem, right? He thought, Hey, WCW sees me at that $1,800 a week number. Do I think I can outpace that with the WWF? And then you just make your decision and go with it. Yeah, pretty much. I think, uh, he, he saw his worth, what they believed his worth would be. I don't know how much more over the weekly guarantees the talents were making there, but, uh, older talents seem to be more attracted to the guaranteed money than younger talents who are willing to take a gamble on themselves and see how it plays out. But, uh, you know, and I always thought that was a unique relationship because, uh, Kevin and Scott were kind of party guys, and, you know, uh, little, little, uh, rebel, re- rebellious. Yeah. And, and, uh, Hunter was just exactly opposite. As I said earlier, he didn't drink, he didn't do drugs. He didn't smoke. Uh, he was, you knew you weren't going to have those issues. He was never going to be in rehab. And, uh, so they just had a friendship outside of the wrestling that that resonated for them. But as far as their working, uh, they didn't have a whole lot in common with some of their other habits. So, uh, but he, he made the right call, obviously, as we can, will continue to discuss. He just had confidence in himself and wanted a chance. And, and like I said, the day that I signed him to his biggest deal at that time, I don't, he's probably, he's probably getting more guaranteed money uh, after that for sure. But at that time, the benchmark was a million a year. If you were a top guy, <laughs> your number is going to be a million dollars a year downside. And that's 19 grand and change a week, which is not a bad living. I want to mention too, uh, because, you know, we've always heard, you know, you, you would say here on the show, it's about cash and creative, mm-hmm. but we've heard another cliche in wrestling. It's all about the money and the miles. So he's leaving guaranteed money, 15 to $1,800 a week, but check this out. WCW's cutting house shows out. So theoretically you're going to get to work less and he's going to the WWF to work more dates. And he's done interviews where he talked about, Hey, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work. He was actually looking for more work. Now, obviously with that, there, that means more opportunity in theory. But man, not a lot of folks are lining up to come to the WWF in 95 business is down in early 95. I mean, there's shows where you guys are running high school gyms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're trying to you're get somebody on... over, get somebody hot. Yes. We had nobody hot. Yes. We want to get, and there was, there was great opportunity there. If you had the balls to go for it and, he and did. that's where he was. The other thing about it is you're going to cut house shows in WCW. You think your, your, your 15 to $1,800 a week number is going to increase. Of course not. No, it's ridiculous to even think that. So he was, he was, that's what his worth was to them at that time. Uh, or they would have paid him more. And then when you take away the frequency of the house shows, which gave you the opportunity perhaps to earn more money, uh, you know, the, you're, you're a 15, $1,800 a week guy. 
And for some people, that's just not going to get it done. That's not moving upward. That's not developing. So I, like I said earlier, I, the fact that he was willing to take a chance, the fact that he was willing to reinvent himself, uh, and a lot, of, and I think most of that reinvention was on his own accord and nobody went to him and said, Hey, you need to re- redo your gimmick. Uh, a lot, a lot of his change came from him maturing and feeling like this is what I need to be doing to maximize my potential, earn more money. And the bottom line is everybody wants to earn more money. On TV, after he leaves, uh, WCW, Eric Bischoff, uh, Bischoff, easy for me to say, is going to start knocking him on the programming, talking about how he thought he was going to be a big deal, but he's just another guy who couldn't cut the mustard like Max Payne. I bet stuff like that, knowing your previous experience with Eric Bischoff really struck a chord with you because in that era, yeah, Eric was not exactly getting Christmas cards from you either, huh? Oh, no, he wasn't, but you know, we didn't get along. Uh, we didn't agree with a lot of things philosophically. Right. Uh, when, uh, you know, no, he took me off the air. So it essentially was killing my career. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. You're a fucking broadcaster and you're not on the air anymore. It's not, you know, we ain't got to be Dr. Phil here to figure out the fact that well, you're, you gotta, you gotta, your end date just came apparent. And I wasn't ready to read my end date. So, but you know, Eric had a decisions to make and he felt, did it for the, what he felt was the best for his company. And it worked for a while. It worked really well for a while. Hence the name of this podcast, 83 weeks. So, uh, but you know, no, I didn't, we didn't agree. And and, that's, and you get the wrestling egos. I had the big, big ego and Eric's got a big ego and, and we we have bigger egos when we were younger. So yeah, you, you get past, uh, you just got to move past it. You know, I, I've often said, you know, him inadvertently, him taking me off the air, getting me all pissed off. They violated their own contract, uh, which was funny cause they wrote the contract and they violated it. Didn't know all the little terms in there. Uh, so, I mean, I was specifically earmarked to do certain jobs there at WCW. So when they reassigned me, they violated their own deal. They weren't contractually able to do that without my, uh, approval, shall we say, but I wasn't going to approve that deal. So, uh, I had about two and a half, three years left of a contract, making pretty good money. Right. I could have set out and drawn money and got paid. And that was not my style either. You know, I didn't want to be out of the game. So that was my calling card. I thought at the time was to be a broadcaster on that level. So yeah, I didn't ever understand, I guess just to stir the pot, create some controversy. I know Eric's book controversy creates cash, uh, aptly named, but it, 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 it seemed to be personal at times, but probably wasn't. But in any event, when he reassigned me at the end of the day, it was the best move ever, I ever had made for me or made with me or whatever for my career. Absolutely the best thing. So it worked out good at the end of the day. And now all that stuff comes around and Eric and I are friends. We're teammates on this, on your network. And, uh, I have no ill will, no malice of forethought regarding him whatsoever. I just, he had to do his job. It didn't suit me, but so what I'm 
And that's why when he came to WWE, I was so, I wanted to make sure I treated him as good or better than the other talents. Cause I didn't want that coming back and biting me in the ass. Well, JR's always had a grudge. He's making Vishal's life miserable, all those things. And none of those things happened. I'm sure Eric would agree with that. I treated him as a professional, politely friendly. We still weren't exchanging Christmas cards, but we were respectful and uh, professional dealing with each other. I want to ask about, um, early 95, you said a moment ago, you think that this was probably a JJ Dillon hire. Uh, I, I think JJ is going to make his exit in 96. Do you have any office duties for the WWF in this era besides being an on-air talent? Are you doing anything else? Cause I know you're not yet running talent relations. No, it's helping JJ. Okay. I was uh, like an assistant, I guess, or something along those lines. We kept hiring and get, we kept tra- the transition of the talent roster kept evolving and growing. And, uh, I think, uh, J I helped JJ and, uh, which was good because, you know, in wrestling, the more tools are in your toolbox, the more security you have in a very insecure business. So, uh, I was in that spot when JJ left, you know, Bruce really lobbied hard for that job. He wanted that job to succeed, uh, JJ. And, and then before that Patterson. So Bruce was really uh, high on that job. And, uh, and so, you know, I just stepped, I didn't even contend contest it. Uh, but Vince brought me in and said, look, I'm not going to pass you over. I'm going to give Bruce JJ's job, but I'm going to create another job and another title for you. And, uh, you're going to be handling the business part of this. And Bruce's uh, strengths are more in line with creative and coming up with gimmicks and things like that. So you both got very important roles to play. And then, uh, as time went on the paperwork and the business side of things that Bruce had to be involved in, or we were both involved in uh, war on him. He really liked being, uh, doing creative, you know, quite honestly, liked to hang around with Patterson and they go off and do their booking things and they had, they did good. And so it was working for him, uh, as a professional. So that's kind of how that worked. It was never any political issues or any, any dirt, you know, whatever. It was just a, a matter of, uh, different roles. And, and that was all a part of Vince's restructuring of our, of our brand. You know, we, we needed to, we needed to desperately start recruiting, uh, other talents. We needed to get fresh faces on television. We needed to start training our own people. Uh, there were other things that go along with getting in the ring and just working out and taking a very safe flat back bump and not being an idiot and using good psychology, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that we needed to, uh, to be involved more in. Hence, that's why we started the developmental program. Uh, so, uh, it was a interesting time. I, that was one of the more fun times of my career there at, uh, WWE, quite frankly, the change is cool. We're in new, new territory, uh, younger, more enthusiastic, new things are on the horizon. So it was a fun time to be in a wrestling business for sure. Well, and it's also probably important since we talked about how business was sort of in a slump, you need fresh, young, hungry, and also affordable talent. So mm-hmm. a guy like this coming in checks all those boxes. Do you remember who would have 
gotten the credit for coming up with the name Hunter Hearst Helmsley and this gimmick of being, uh, I guess a Connecticut blue blood who <laughs> wore a tailcoat. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them with Royal Caribbean. You don't just go to the beach. You visit a private Island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. No, I'm sure that uh, at the end of the day, as we always talk, Vince blessed it. But maybe somebody on creator, maybe Hunter himself came up with it. I'm not real sure. Uh, but the the gimmick was nothing really extraordinarily new the aloof uh looking down his nose at you uh heel uh was not a new concept it was just repackaged and redefined in his character and his body so i'm thinking so maybe some he, he you know <clears throat> he was a very creative guy uh good at, if he was in a match on tv even young like that he would always have ideas on how to make it happen better. So he was again, willing to take a chance on his own creative, his own instincts. So I would probably think Conrad at the end of the day, and that's a very predictable answer, probably Vince, uh, Vince put, would probably put the finishing touches and all that stuff and make uh, Hunter, uh, that Greenwich, you know, it wasn't coincidental that Vince lived in Greenwich and right. You know, so. Uh, it, that's how I see it anyway. There may be Bruce may be able to clarify that better than I, from a creative standpoint, but somewhere along the way, when you talk about creative, uh, you have to include the old man's, uh, input and guidance, uh, every time. Hunter has said in interviews that JJ Dillon gave him the name of Reginald DuPont Helmsley, but that Hunter asked for a name with the first three, uh, letters and he suggested the name Hunter Hearst Helmsley. So I guess Hunter's claiming the credit, but I've always been fascinated by the WWF. And it feels like specifically Vince really likes when we have that, I, I guess it's an alliteration. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that is, is Vince's deal? Does Vince just think it's more marketable or is it more of a personal quirk of his? No, I think he thinks it's more marketable. Okay. Yeah, more marketable. Uh, and, it, and quite frankly, it's just something that can roll off the tip of your tongue. And it's something that you can, uh, you can, it's got, you can call, call it up every now and then. And it, it's just, a, it's an identifier. So it's, a, you look back at a lot of the guys, even today, there's a lot of events in the names, you know? Uh, so, but I think, like I said, Hunter was a very, young guy that had the courage and the convictions to have a, have a part or a role in his, his creative. And a lot of guys in the business in general have a habit of just waiting until someone else 
provides them with their signature name, the ring attire, a finish, whatever it may be. And he never waited on anybody. He always had, he always brought something to the dance. And I've always really respected him for that aspect of his career. It is interesting that this is happening again in, in early 95, because I think a lot of our listeners who are familiar with the Fox catcher story know that John DuPont, uh, was going to be uh, well, a rather controversial figure. Uh, and even somebody who's going to cross paths with Kurt angle. We just did a show about that. Not too terribly long ago, but man, it's a good thing. We didn't go with DuPont, even though his name had become synonymous with not only wealth, but amateur wrestling. Right. Um, but it is kind of fun to think instead of triple H, you know, we might be calling him RDH. Uh, the first vignette for Hunter Hearst Helmsley airs on April 16th on wrestling challenge, where he's making fun of the bushwhackers. Uh, the new head shrinkers and the smoking guns for not having his level of class. He's being portrayed as, I guess we'd call him an aristocrat. And there's a lot of criticism that this gimmick is awfully similar to the WCW gimmick that Lord Steven Regal is using, but it is a different promotion. Did you see this as I believe the term is gimmick infringement, Jim? No, not at all. <clears throat> because if William Regal had been the first to have that that, uh, gimmick, then you could have a case to stand on, on your gimmick infringement concept. But you know, where you go was far from the first guy that had that, that, uh, feel I'm better than you. I'm regal and all, well, you know, look at gorgeous George going all the way back. Uh, he had that. I'm, I'm, I'm rich. I'm pretty, you know, my hair, all this stuff. So, you know, he was the first chicken shit heel that I can recall of any significance, gorgeous George. So there are a lot of guys that followed when George had his success. It's inevitable. It's the same thing that's happened in wrestling. Even since those days in the thirties and forties, when somebody comes up with a gimmick, uh, and it's a territory system, but there's no overlap in televisions, Conrad, then a lot of guys copied those gimmicks and then they made it their own for their region. And the only place anybody saw it was in that region. And if you weren't traveling abroad or out and about, you, you didn't even know about that concept. So I don't think it was giving convention at all with those two guys. Uh, but no doubt in my mind, they both would have made it. That would have been a hell of a team because I have great respect for Regal and I think he's uh, grossly overrated, uh, underrated, I should say underrated. And, uh, he would have taught. The great lessons there would have been how much he would have taught, uh, Paul Levesque by being his partner. That's always a, a benefit, but we don't look at that sometimes as fans, right? We just look at the matches they had, or they had this real good match with Harlem heat or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot of his creative was him triple H. He's going to defeat bug zoom off on WWF wrestling challenge in his television debut on April 30th. And he's going to use the ACE crusher. Uh, and, um, apparently when, uh, his old pal diamond Dallas page sees him pull this move off on TV, he gives him a call and asks, Hey man, uh, I'm kind of using that. Would you mind using a different finish? And supposedly Hunter said no problem which I thought was a really cool thing. I mean, a lot of guys on another channel would have said, you know what, man, piss off, but Hunter didn't do that. Uh, he's going to change his finish and we know he's going to wind up with the pedigree, but he at least started with a version of the diamond cutter 
or I guess as it was known back then, the ACE crusher. Did you hear that story before Jim? what did you think of that? Yeah, I'd heard about that. And, uh, that's just the kind of guy he had confidence in his own game. Yeah. Uh, and knew that there are a lot of other finishes that he could come up with that would not, uh, identify him with somebody else. Uh, and you know, in, in all due respect to Dallas page at that time, page wasn't a household name. He was perceived as one of the great superstars of, of the era. He was a solid hand. who was continuing to evolve his game after starting in his mid thirties. So for triple H to go the other direction and figure out something else to do, uh, certainly I wasn't surprised with that such scenario. He's going to get something that the name can fit him. The, the, he'll do it where he'll get a move that anybody can take. And, you know, whether you're a huge 300 pound guy or, or you're a cruiserweight, uh, that, uh, pedigree will work on anybody. And that's the, really the magic of a great finish is that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's ubiquitous in the sense that it's everywhere for every opponent. And I think that that's what, uh, he was looking for. I didn't envision the pedigree, but I certainly understood the logic of it. You could use it on anybody and beat them. And that's what he did. I've taken a few pedigrees myself and, you know, it's just, it's easy to take, uh, for most people. And, uh, unless you'd like me and a cow on ice, but you know, you just do the best you can. And, but he was, he was very creative, very clever, very, very clever from an early age. He got it. When did you first meet Hunter? Oh God, Conrad. I don't know. Maybe I don't know that I met him in, uh, WCW at all. I think we, we weren't together. I left there in 93 to come to WWE, which was WrestleMania nine. Uh, I would say after he arrived in uh, WWE, uh, early on. Do you remember your first meeting with him though? What was your first impression? That's what I'm trying to get to. Well, I was impressed with him. He, 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 he was, he dressed professionally. He looked good. His shoes were shined, uh, well-groomed, polite on time, reliable. So, uh, uh, all the things that you check your boxes as an administrator was what I was, uh, impressed with. Right. Professionalism. He always had uh, extraordinary professionalism. So he was very, again, you know, my term about the reliability aspect. That's the number one thing you got to have to impress me. You got to be reliable. I don't give a shit that you can do uh, 1800 flips or whatever you want to do. By the way, he didn't do flips. Right. Uh, he wrestled, uh, and, uh, not did, it was a stunt guy. So, uh, but I just, I was very impressed with him. He had a meeting with him. He was on time. He was dressed nicely. He looked like a professional and I, I always appreciated his efforts in that regard. I'm curious from a, um, you know, a, a television standpoint, there's a, there's a phrase in wrestling TV ready. Did you think his time in WCW had allowed him to be TV ready? Or did you still think he was maybe a little green at this point? I think he's only been in the business. What? Like three or four years at this point. He was still light green for sure, but not, not a bright green. <laughs> he was a light green. Uh, no, he was, he was trained very well with Kowalski. Kowalski was a task master. 
not Kevin Sullivan taskmaster, but a, uh, a hard driven, like an old offensive line coach or something. Kowalski would bitch and bark and, 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 and riff it, nip at your butt, so to speak. And I think that that was a real good foundation for, for Paul. And he did, uh, he learned well from, uh, from a great master. Now Kowalski was one of the great crowd psychologists ever in wrestling. And, uh, he, he was not only, you know, he looked, he, he was six, seven and he was lean, you know, Kowalski was a vegan. So his, he maintained his diet, that vegetarian diet. And he, he seemed to never get heavy. He was a lean six, seven, two eighty. And some of the old publicity pictures of him, he was even called Tarzan Kowalski. He had a great physique. And I think his great physique from those, all those pictures and, uh, triple H being again, the student of the game impressed triple H where physique, and he was a former bodybuilder, you know, he wasn't a great, uh, amateur athlete, but he was, he was, a, a successful bodybuilder in a regional level. So I think that was another Kowalski trait that he, he pulled from. So, uh, good, but he was, a. No, he was, uh, he, he learned Kowalski was Kowalski got triple H as ready as anybody could have. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of, I think he was more TV ready when he went to WCW than a lot of his peers because mm. he, he had invested himself into this, the, uh, education of the game. And he sat under that learning tree with one-on-one instruction, you know, Kowalski didn't have uh, 150 students. He only had a few students, right? So he got to spend more time with his uh, people. And that's what I would suggest to anybody that's going to try to go to a, a pro wrestling school is that, uh, don't go to one that has too many students where you can't get any individual attention. Ask any parent, you want your kid in a classroom with a hundred kids, or you want them in a classroom with 20. It's pretty simple. So that, I think that's, that helped a lot there. Hunter is such a big fan of, uh, what they're doing. And he knows that there's, uh, maybe one last opportunity to do something kind of special. So he takes it upon himself as the legend goes to fly himself to the Boston garden. And he's going to beg Pat Patterson to work this show. It's the final Boston garden show ever on May 13th, 1995. And this is the same building where his dad used to bring him to watch shows. And man, that just. That is a very telltale sign of the way a guy feels about the business. You've often told stories on our program here, Jim, of guys who didn't necessarily grow up big fans of wrestling. They're just in it for the cash. You know, they're professional athletes. They've got the right look. This is an opportunity to make money, but it wasn't necessarily a passion of theirs, but for you to go out of your way to fly yourself to a show that you're not booked on because this is the building you grew up watching wrestling in. That's an indicator that this is a guy who's uh, a lifer, as you said. Yeah. And the other thing about that Conrad, is it shows also that he had good parenting Yeah, and, and the strong, a uh, strong unit parental unit. You know, I got, to, I've got to know over the years, uh, Paul's, uh, father and his mom, and they're wonderful people. They really are salt of the earth. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have all the respect for them in the world, but that's, that also told me that. This guy's got the, the, the base skills to be a team player, uh, and to be a long-term contributor because he's got a good foundation. 
not, not just the foundation. Can you take a flat back, but the foundation of, do you respect your peers? Are you willing to work hard? You know, if you had good, uh, parental guidance being, uh, you know, right. Being, uh, being raised. So that's what it told me. And I've been one of the, it's been a cool thing to be friends with this mom and dad over the years. I just think they're, they're really, really good people. They've always been very nice to me and the complimentary, you know, they say, well, you really, man, you did a great job, uh, in, in Paul's match. And I, you know, I, I hear, I've heard, I hear that occasionally, he, he, I guess you say as an egocentric, uh, uh, entertainer, you don't ever hear it enough. Right. Uh, but he always was complimentary of my work, Mr. Levesque. And, uh, you know, I had interesting times with them and, you know, we were all together. I think at triple H's, uh, bachelor party, which was at a strip club in Raleigh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I remember that night at that place I met, uh, you know, one of my favorite actors, just his name just went all to hell with me. Uh, Robert wool, W U H L. Yeah. Arliss. <laughs> Uh, he played, uh, yeah, he, he was that. he created that character on HBO Arliss. And he, one of my cult favorite movies, uh, was Hollywood nights. And he was, uh, I think he was a key. All I know is that when the, when the, the, the club closed at two or three in the morning, he and I are standing, he, Robert will and I are standing outside. Cause I don't think he was there. He was there for a charity event, not for the party, but he partook and, uh, so he and I were standing side by side doing, uh, dialogue Turk. He played that character, Turk, Fran Drescher, great scene. And they're going to have sex in a car and he's just getting started. And she says, Kurt, did you come? Did you come? Yeah. It's a funny movie. <laughs> you should check and see it. Well, he, he had a little premature ejaculation issue, obviously. Okay. But it was a slapstick sophomore comedy and it was really funny. I'm sure some of our, uh, listeners will, will can identify with it. Not premature ejaculation. They may have that issue too. See, I'm, I'm a high level guy here, Conrad. Yeah. You, I love your facial expressions about, you know, you can bleep that out if you want to. Oh no, we'll leave it in. It's your show, baby. It's not, it's <laughs> so, not, it's uh, not grilling Connie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I've had, a, I had the, uh, the occasion to be in some unique scenarios with uh, Paul and his family. And, uh, and I, and just was, uh, so I got to know the whole group better than a lot of talents. And uh, that's why I always, uh, cringe, you know, people get pissed at triple H because they're jealous and because of who he married. They believe that, well, maybe, maybe they believe that he would not have been such a success if he had not, uh, married the boss's daughter. And I totally disagree with that. Uh, you can't tell me that the wedding vows made him a great worker. He made himself a great worker, but he's not given credit for it enough because of the jealousy thing and the anti McMahon backlash at times. So it's, uh, he's never given credit sometimes. I don't think Connie for his, uh, hard work and his dedication to the business. Let's talk about, uh, his finishing maneuver that we all identify with these days, the pedigree. 
Uh, I gotta admit, I hadn't seen this before. I mean, I, I'm sure there's nothing new in wrestling. As they say, everything's recycled or borrowed or reused or stolen, whatever. But I don't remember seeing the pedigree pre Hunter. Is that the first time you had seen it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And like I said, uh, what I liked about it so much was the fact that it, it could be applied to anybody. He could give that move to you and your body type or me and my body type just as easily as he could with one of the boys, you know, you kick your feet out and you, you, you land on your gut and your face first type deal. Uh, so it was very creative, very clever. But I think the first time I saw it was him doing it. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Hunter's going to work his first pay-per-view match in the WWF against Bob Holly at SummerSlam. He picks up the win with a pedigree in seven minutes and 11 seconds. Meltzer gave it a star in three quarters, but man, making a big splash on pay-per-view, you're getting a win at SummerSlam. Uh, that's a pretty cool, uh, indicator that the company's got some faith and confidence in you when they're going to put you on the big show and give you a win. Yeah, no doubt. He was, he was, uh, he had been selected. you have been anointed by the old man that. This is somebody we're going to build around and, uh, and we did, and we did it successfully. Uh, Hunter's going to get his first real program with Henry Godwin. Of course, this is classic wrestling storytelling. I guess you've got the aristocrat versus the hillbilly or the pig farmer. Uh, so it's, it's a natural and Hunter is really sort of the, the prototype of a Vince McMahon esque character in this era. But of course. Deep down inside, Vince probably thinks of himself as a redneck growing up in North Carolina. So this is sort of before and after Vince McMahon, but Hunter is probably what Vince imagined a wrestler was supposed to look like. As you said, six, four, 270 pounds, uh, bodybuilder physique. That's Vince's deal all day. Yeah. All day long that, uh, hog farmer angle. Uh, I remember we were in Hershey, Pennsylvania and we had a, uh, that match. Uh, in the hog pen. And of course, uh, I had to put on uh, waiters boots because it was, it's imperative that I do, I get in the hog shit, uh, that would have been about knee deep and do an interview because I knew what the upshot was that, that was going to be Jr. going into the hog shit and, uh, which would entertain Vince, the talents. Triple H didn't really buy into that. I never took the bump into the hog shit. I got some hog shit on me. You got hog shit on you. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but they thought it, the comedy didn't fit their presentation. Right. And it didn't, the comedy was booked to embarrass me quite simply. Do you understand that? Yes. So, uh, but they didn't, Henry Godwin, uh, didn't, didn't like it. He liked it better than Hunter, but Hunter wanted to get over. He wanted him to get over or the match to get over and not the announcer who had waddled his way into the hog pen. 
and, uh, he had good logic. And, and so I got messed up. I got messy, but I didn't get submerged as uh, Vince would have loved. Cause I remember when I came back through the gorilla position, you could see that he was a little disappointed that my fate accomplished did not, uh, include, uh, a face and a mouthful of hog shit. <laughs> We're going to get there. Uh, and in your house in Winnipeg on October 22nd, Hunter's going to pick up another victory over Fatu in eight minutes and six seconds. Meltzer would write Fatu worked much harder than usual and did a good job of carrying Helmsley who they are clearly protecting and building for the future. And it's reported in November that there are issues with the click regarding how they only want to work with each other now and how razor Ramon was setting up to drop the intercontinental championship to Hunter at some point. And we sort of skipped over this, but I think the first WWF show Hunter attended was WrestleMania 11. Uh, and as the story goes, as he's introducing himself in the back, I think it was Terry Taylor who said, Hey, Paul, let me introduce you to a couple guys. You're going to want to ride with them. And he winds up meeting, of course, Shawn Michaels and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Is that the version of events that you've heard that he met those guys at WrestleMania 11 and Terry Taylor may have suggested perhaps they would be good riding partners. I did not hear it verbatim that way. Uh, but it could have happened. I'm not denying that folklore could have happened plausible, but I don't know for sure that it happened, uh, in that regard, but I have no reason to say it didn't happen. It's just, you know, I, I wasn't keeping up with who's riding with who and, and, uh, well, but those guys always had a, they always got along. They had, they all had great senses of humor. And, uh, even though they had some philosophical differences in their lifestyles, uh, you know, when, when you have three guys, four guys, and, and then you get three of them that are enjoy, uh, you know, eating a buzz occasionally. And he didn't. So he wasn't a, he just, this is, it was always amazing to me that they had, they got along so well. And they had so many major differences in their personality. Yeah. But they just were buddies. They connected, you know, uh, and I'm sure you've got friends in your life that oh, yeah. you may not have as much in common with as some people may perceive, but there's enough key things in common with those individuals that, that, that established and galvanized a friendship. And I think that's the case here with these guys. They, they laughed, they had a good time. Uh, and, and. I think that, uh, some things that were going on, you know, triple H was very much a business guy and, uh, was, I would think at times would get concerned over the flippant attitude of the other guys, uh, would have. And when you got great talent and the, the owner of the company likes you and you, and you bring in some game, uh, that's, that's not a surprise, surprising development. So, uh but they just seem to always just have that great chemistry, Conrad, and they got along well. When, when was it first on your radar that this, uh, quote unquote click now included Hunter? Do you recall? Don't recall the exact time. It just seemed like it was a natural thing. Yeah. It was inevitable to me that it was going to be a relationship that was going to be ongoing and everlasting. Well, one of the downsides of, uh, working with a, uh, pig farmer is you're going to wind up working house show loops with them. And unfortunately we're trying to send the, the, the fans home happy. And more often than not, that means you're going to wind up getting slopped. 
So there's a slot bucket that the pig farmers bring to the ring with them. And, uh, old Henry O is going to make sure that Hunter gets, uh, redecorated before he goes to the back. And when you're making towns and probably washing your gear in the sink back at the hotel, that's what we would call less than ideal. Fair to say, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was challenging, but he hung in there. Yeah. A lot of guys would have had it in today's world. They'd have an HR issue. Right. And, uh, not saying WWE didn't have an HR department back in those days, but it certainly wasn't as refined as it is now, but, uh, you know, he, he, he was a, he was a good soldier. He, he gutted it out. And it, like you said, the common sense stuff, he had to wash that mud and hog shit off of him every, every night that that can't be fun. I don't care. Even if you're a hog farmer for a living, you <laughs> you're not going to enjoy that. So at survivor series, Helmsley is going to tag with Jerry Lawler, King Mabel and Isaac Yankum. Now Lawler's a top guy. Say what we will about King Mabel or Isaac Yankum as characters, but they're going to take on Fatu, Henry O. Godwin, Savio Vega, and the undertaker. The undertaker is a, a tippy top guy here in the promotion. And of course he's going to beat everyone, not the best showcase for Helmsley, but it was entertaining. And this is going to build towards that, uh, in your house match that you were talking about before the, mm-hmm. the hog pen match, right? Is that a Bruce Pritchard idea? I don't know. Well, who knows? Bruce could tell you Meltzer would write Meltzer would write the garden show, even with the below average crowd had more heat than usual. Uh, many fans also got slopped after the Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Henry Godwin match. All these lead me to sense a much stronger Bruce Pritchard influence on the booking. I got to think, I, I don't know that I've ever asked him, but I need to, this was a Bruce Pritchard idea. Uh, it very well could have been Conrad. It could very well could have been, you know, that's, that's an old territory, uh, type, uh, risk or chance to take and, and Bruce likes comedy. Right. So I don't know what you did for the heel. Uh, and, and, but it was, it was comedic and, and, and like I said, Bruce has a propensity for comedy and things of that nature, which I find sometimes ironic because he was raised on Houston wrestling and Bosch, even that era did some crazy things, especially when it came to him to get him involved in some stuff. So, uh, but it's, it's always surprised me. It looks a little bit that, that Bruce didn't go, uh, down the blood and guts route more. And, and always had something funny. And I think that was a lot of in a WWE, that was a lot of the influence that Pat Patterson had on Bruce's thinking and his philosophy. Cause Pat had a great sense of humor. And Pat was always looking to find some ha ha in, in whatever he was working on in a, in a big way. That's why in the Royal rumble, when Pat was laying out the Royal rumble back in the day, there's always going to be a spot. You can look back on any of them folks. Some of those Royal rumbles that Patterson booked, there's always going to be some comedy somewhere along the way. And that's just, that was Pat's style, which again was an expression of his, uh, creativity because he was raised on Roy Shire booking in, in San Francisco. And if anything, Roy Shire was not a comedic booker. He liked serious drama. So, uh, that could have that Bruce, I would not, I wasn't going to get on a witness stand and say that Bruce didn't do that. He, he could have, and you know, and it wasn't, a, you know, I'm not saying it was a horrible idea either. It just was comedy when you're trying to get a top heel over. 
Let's, uh, before we talk about that match, let's talk about something that happens at a house show in Wheeling, West Virginia. They let Hunter win a battle Royal to gain a shot at Bret Hart's WWF title later that night. So Brett's going to challenge or defend the world title in the main event against Hunter here in Wheeling. This might not seem like a big deal, but this is probably a test by the office to see Hunter's progress in the ring, get a report from Brett, see how the fans react to him in this spot. Uh, even though it might feel like, oh man, am I being punished? I'm, I'm getting slopped every night. I'm in a hog pin match. It feels like you might be toiling away, but then when you win the battle Royal and you're in the main event with the champ, it's gotta be a good sign. Yeah. I think a lot of that was to see what Brett was going to say. Yeah. You want your champion to be compatible as much as possible without upsetting, uh, or as the old expression goes, hair lifting the governor, uh, and not screwing up the system. If Brett said, boy, this guy's got something. Then that's really all Vince needed ever here is that Brett's got something or excuse me. Well, we knew Brett had something. He was a champ, but we, but seriously with, uh, with Hunter, uh, passing the getting a passing grade from Brett was a big thing, especially with Patterson, especially with Patterson. And of course, and Patterson had great influence with McMahon. So that's kind of how I see that chain of command working. And, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not as. I'm not as crazy about all this, the stuff, the punishment stuff, Well, he got punished for this. He got punished for that. And he got punished for this deal. You know, uh, this part of the damn journey, man. Right. And, and he made the most of it. He didn't quit. He didn't fold his tent and go home. He didn't, he didn't pull his horns in where he couldn't uh, have great matches. So for, for, if anything that wrestling fans should understand and respect and remember is that he did go through a lot but he, he, he went through it. He stayed where he needed to stay. So I, I'm, uh, I got a lot of respect for Hunter in that regard for sure. For sure. Let's also mention that the, uh, the pay-per-view has a special guest referee for this hog pen match. Hillbilly Jim is going to come back. Uh, here's what Meltzer had to say of the match. Both of these guys worked hard, but the idea was to work the match down to behind the ringside area and throw the opponent into the hog pen for the win. It made everything in the ring lack any meaning. The finish saw Godwin deliver his slop drop near the pin, uh, then have Helmsley set up and go for a tackle, but Helmsley ducks and Godwin goes into the pin and loses. Helmsley then got into a shoving contest with Jim, but Godwin came back and press slammed Helmsley face first into the pin and then body slams him into the pin. It was even more gross since Helmsley had a cut opened up on his back from taking a guardrail shot. Yep. Lot to unpack here, but man, if you got an open cut, an open wound, and now you're literally rolling around in mud and well, supposedly shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a major health risk now, too. Yeah. Well, here's what it is that that's the obvious. You're right. But the thing about it is is that he did it. Yes, he did. He could have taken a bump, a, a, a slam, and landed on a, as a flat back. Which would not have, which not would not have helped his back cut uh, any, but the more significance, the more memorable bump is to go face first into the perceived hog shit, and that's what he did. And a lot of guys have said, "Oh no, I'm not doing that." So if you understand what I'm saying, he he took a bump that was very uh, uninviting, but it made the match better. And that was always seemingly to me, his goal was to make the match better. 
I also want to mention there's a, a famous story, I think, that happened on this day where when they go to deliver the, uh, the farm animals, Owen Hart directs them to Vince's office. Is that the way you heard the story? Oh yeah. That happened that I can remember happening. Yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was, Vince is not happy about that. And, uh, of course we all, everybody knew who did it, but nobody would talk. <laughs> Vince knew who did it. Oh, and that was one of his best ribs, man. So Vince's, uh, office had, uh, the, the wonderful odor of, uh, untrained farm animals who were having trouble controlling their bowel movements in Vince's uh, little office there at the TV. You know, wrestling is a, a weird place, uh, at times politically, and uh, it just feels like it's an interesting fraternity, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by what the politics look like here in 95 in regards to he's writing with guys who were, who were top guys. The, the quote unquote click, but they also have managed to uh, piss off or annoy whatever descriptor you want to use a lot of the other boys. And we've also heard in wrestling that quote unquote business is done in the bar and Hunter doesn't exactly drink or party, but as you said, he's level-headed clean cut guy. Yep. Is he alienating himself? I mean, is this hurting him politically with the rest of the locker bit. room? Do you yeah. think? Sure. A little bit Conrad. Uh, there's guilt by association and that's not how you should judge anybody. My dad told me years ago, you judge people on how they treat you son. If a guy is honest and loyal and is treats you right, then he, he, you should treat him reciprocally. Right. And, uh, Hunter got a lot of the transgressions and the attitudinal things and the, uh, you know, defiance that, uh, the other three guys, uh, had was, uh, Hunter got pulled into that a little bit, even though more often than not, he didn't do anything, but it was guilt by association. He was just, he was one of them, those guys. And, uh, but again, he so he's blamed for shit that he didn't do or that he wasn't a big party to, but he endured it. He didn't say, no way. That's not me. He, he went right along with the deal. They were his buddies. That friendship came first. And if you can't handle our friendship then don't associate with it, I don't think it ever affected too many matches. You hear some dressing room lawyers to talk about it or something like that, you know, but of course, uh, that's, that's today. That's yesterday. That's the thirties, the forties. It's always that way because of the nature of, of this, uh, of this business. If this business was all about shoots and real, you'd have a, a lot smaller roster and a lot, a lot of the familiar faces that you and I talk about on this show would not be in it because it was, it would have suited their skill set. They're not shooters. They're not amateurs, you know, and there there's, there's only so many Steiners, so many Dr. Deaths, you know, those, so many Danny Hodges, all those kind of guys, Jack Briscoe. So, uh, it's a whole different world when you stop, if you go back down to the basics of what's real and what isn't real. So anyway, I, I, he got, he got craft on and we use craft a lot in the show. He, he got, he got doo-dooed on plenty of times for things that really he didn't have any control over. Well, let's talk about, uh, what's happening 
uh, as we round up 1995 and we cruise on into 96, this is from the observer. Razor Ramon is complaining long and loud about his uh, program with gold dust. The baby faces in the click hate the gimmick and unfortunately have taken it out on Dustin Rhodes, the person rather than accepting him as someone saddled with a bad gimmick, just trying to do his job. Granted, the angle is really lame. Ramon is trying to get the program switched to working with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And it's amazing when you do podcasts like this to talk about what could have been the Goldust program doesn't happen with Scott Hall and triple H is inserted instead. Could it have changed wrestling history? Do you think, or do you think Scott would have wound up leaving the company either way? I think Scott had his sights set on a salary and working a lighter schedule. Yeah. You know, at, at, and he'd been, it wasn't like he was some new kid is, you know, he was, he's taken 20 years worth of bumps. So I think that was always going to be his, his idea. Uh, at least that's my assumption. Uh, smart bookers. If you get a, a situation where talents, uh, just don't have the chemistry in the ring or out of the ring, Conrad, the best way to, to dissolve that uh, potential train wreck and cluster is to don't book them. Just don't, don't put them in this, put them up to other people. And if you got a young, uh, heel, uh, like, uh, Paul Levesque was at that time. And you got a veteran who's over who wants to work with him and help make him that's, that's not illogical. Right now, the old school shit of the Ole Anderson philosophy, well, you're going to do what I tell you or cowboy bill watch. You're going to do what I tell you. I'm the boss. I'm the booker. Here's the deal. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I understood it. And for a lot of older older school guys, they didn't like the concept that really had nothing to do with the individuals. It has something to do with the, uh, of tweaking the system and a talent sticking up and saying, I don't want to work with this guy. Right. So that's kind of how I, I looked at that matter. Did it change wrestling history? I, that's a bold statement. I don't know about that, but it certainly, uh, helped make Hunter, uh, put him back, put him on the map quicker. And, and, and I think the matches that, uh, razor wanted to have at that stage of his career were more conducive to working with a pretty straight looking heel, straight presentation. I don't mean straight as in sexual, I know what you mean, you know, but a more traditional, uh, presentation and, uh, and, and Vince went along with it. You know, I, I was booking some house shows then helping JJ and, <clears throat> and doing some things like that, but it was, uh, it didn't affect me. It, it, they always deliver good matches and that's kind of a, a booker or a booker's assistant or whatever is your goal. Let's make sure that the product that we present the fans who are buying a ticket and, and uh, making the commitment to get there, leave home park, all that good stuff is what they is a good value for their investment. And I don't remember, you can look at all that. Uh, we could do all the research we want to do would both be hard pressed to find matches that, uh, Hunter and uh, razor had Conrad that were stinkers. It just didn't happen because again, remember the emotional investment in this was made by the senior member of that match, a very well-known star. He was not going to do anything to let, uh, that issue fall to the wayside. He tried harder, I think. And uh, I think it's always the case when a talent has the ability to have input in their creative. 
We get to the Royal Rumble and Triple H opens the show with uh, Duke Drose. The winner of the match gets to be the 30th member and the loser will be the first participant in the Royal Rumble match. Uh, Triple H is going to lose by reverse decision when Gorilla Monsoon announces because Triple H used the brass knucks to win, he is disqualified. Uh, so Triple H is really going to be carrying the rumble here. He's going to be number one. He's going to last 48 minutes, ultimately get thrown out by diesel. Uh, once again, the click taking care of the click, right? And the Helmsley gimmick is going to shift a little bit from being the aristocrat to more of a playboy. Uh, he's going to start coming to the ring with a different model for every match. Uh, this is a nice little wrinkle to the character. And I guess it's important to evolve in professional wrestling. And, and here's the first evolution we see to this Herner Hurst Helmsley character. And, and basically what it was is a, uh, a tribute to Rick, to nature boy, Rick flair, who had a great influence in, uh, uh, in the early formation of the philosophy and the, and the techniques utilized by uh, Paul Levesque in his career. Flair was, a, was a role model in that regard. So, uh, that was just, to me was, a uh, I don't know what you'd say, a tribute maybe, but, uh, you know, he saw it working for Nate. And uh, tons of other wrestlers that had uh, attractive women, uh, at, you know, uh, valets and attendants and whatever you want to say. So I, I, I think that was what that was, but here it goes back to what we talked about very early. He was willing as he developed to try new things. And a lot of guys find their comfort zone creatively, costume wise, ring attire, finish holes, sequencing, everything stays the same. And he was able to continue to reinvent himself to make his, his brand stronger. Helmsley's going to cut off Duke's hair on raw, but on the house shows, he's working with Sean Michaels. Um, is there a difference between the creative we're seeing on TV versus on the road? I mean, clearly you're trying to, you know, give the fans a good match, uh, when, when you're at a house show and you want to pay things off and whatnot, but it doesn't seem like. All right. So on TV, you're cutting the, the, the garbage man's hair, but on the house shows you're working with Sean. Well, uh, so are you saying that he should have been cutting Sean's hair too? Well, no, I, I just find it interesting that, uh, it feels like if you wanted to be a devil's advocate, maybe you wanted to be a conspiracy theorist, the click, boy, they're really kind of, uh, getting to do what they want to do on the house shows. Pretty much. But here's the thing. What, what they were wanting to do is. Again, I'll go back to the same thing we talked about earlier regarding the, uh, triple H's matches with the razor. How many bad triple H uh, Shawn Michaels matches did you read about? Yeah. And it generally closed the show. I'll take, I'll, I'll put my money on those two guys closing any live event that I would book and, and, uh, and do it very well and very professionally in that respect. Now, what they did earlier in the day at catering or what they did the night before at a bar or what they did, whatever, whatever. That's whatever. Yeah. That's just whatever it is. Uh, you know, you want to, you can't have a happy Valley and that's not a Penn state reference, but you can't have a, everything can't be hearts and flowers and you need to have a little, what I always wanted to, to, to create it was competition. I wanted talents to know that if you are good enough, you're going to find your way to the upper level of the card where the bulk of the monies are. And I think that's what we created there a great deal. Uh, 
and, and it gave the guys the opportunity to do things, open doors and, and created new marriages, so to speak. So, uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I, it, the, the Vince's dad would say, you know, the key thing about is just get the match in the ring. You got a match booked and you get, then you're having problems generally about money. So consequently, somebody's not wanted to work. So what do you do? Do you unbook it? Do you false advertise? Do you give them an inferior product? What do you do? Well, what you do is you get the match in the ring and you depend on the two talents to put their differences or their payroll issues aside, or you solve those issues with a few bucks. And then of course you will cease doing business with that individual when they basically blackmailed your ass and to give them more money. Blackmail is probably not a good word. What a conspiracy. I don't know what, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, uh money. And so cash and creative baby cash and creative never, never, it's never going to change. Let's talk about, uh, what's next at the next in your house. We're treated to another Helmsley versus uh, Duke, the dumpster match where Hunter gets the win. Uh, and you take a look back at, at how Helmsley is handling this rising star. And this is well before the, the curtain call, but he's not exactly working with top guys, but he's usually in featured moments or he's on the a side. Uh, but somewhere along the way, they, they feel like, Hey, he's, he's going to be the guy, but it's not until after WrestleMania 12, it's announced that the ultimate warrior is returning and his opponent is going to be Hunter. Um, in theory, I would think, okay, listen, we got a guy who may have a little bit of ring rust. Let's put him in there with a capable performer, somebody who knows how to get the job done and can sort of camouflage any weaknesses and, you know, accentuate the positive, so to speak. Correct. That's not exactly necessary in this particular match, but as the story goes, the way the match went down is not exactly how it was originally supposed to go. What do you remember about the WrestleMania decision to, to put Hunter with warrior and, and the match itself and how it may or may not have changed. It's what you outlined, uh, uh moments ago. It's, it was a, a matter of getting a mat. You know, look, we've talked about the warrior. He's a head case. He's always worried about things. He, he, you know, he was, he was hard to do business with at times. So what we wanted to try to accomplish there was to put him with somebody that he could trust and that he knew could make warrior look good do that. And we trusted triple H to get that done. It wasn't a great uh, booking for him. I guess he is going to work with one of the previously known biggest stars in the business. He is going to do the honors, but I don't know that, he, but he also knew what his real job was there to protect the image of the ultimate warrior. Cause we didn't know at that time that warrior wasn't, didn't have plenty of gas in a tank was going to become this red hot box office sensation that he used to be. We didn't know that we hoped that he would, but we knew that if he did, if he got started off on the wrong foot and fans saw too much rust or too many missteps, uh, things of that nature. Cause remember the heel calls the match, right? So we knew that Hunter was not going to put the warrior into a situation that the warrior couldn't, uh, uh, address and, and come out looking good. So that was really the deal. It was more and more, I think of a, we had great trust in triple H. We, we knew his skill set was conducive to, to covering up the warriors mistakes or inconsistencies. So to me, it was a, and I talked to Paul Levesque about that over the years, you know, he didn't, you know, he'll laugh about it, 
but the bottom line was he understood what his role was and he didn't mind being a role player in that, in that particular situation, because he knew going forward, if he's going to continue to rise up the ladder, he's going to have to work with a lot of guys that may not have his same skill set, but he's got to still work with them and, and, and end up or when they leave the ring of the people saying, well, that was a hell of a match. That's all he wanted just to have a hell of a match and a good presentation. Well, as we know, it's a total squash. Uh, the warrior is going to pin him in, uh, a minute and 38 seconds, but along the way, totally no sell the pedigree. Uh, I, I would have done that. That was, I'm sure warrior probably, uh, wanted that spot in. And again, tr- the office knew that was not the way to go, but you got to get over that hill of kicking out of the pedigree or no selling the pedigree or whatever you want to say. Uh, you know, it's just, it was just, a it, again, going out of our way to, uh, adhere to the, uh, insecurities and the paranoia of the warrior. What's the right thing to do in, in theory? In, of course not. You kick out of a guy, your buildings finish, right? And he beat him in under two minutes. I get it. But again, the risk reward was, but if we can get warrior hot again, we're, we're going to come out of those doldrums that you outlined earlier where the business is soft and a lot of talents weren't hot and, and, and over. So that was all we were trying to do is if warriors got some fuel in the tank, let's get some Hunter bumps into Mark Merrow after the match with his model. And, uh, of course we know that's going to go on to be known as Sable, but now Merrow is programmed with Hunter. And of course, Merrow is, is freshly signed by WCW, just like Hunter a year prior. It's kind of interesting how their careers are running. I wouldn't say parallel, but a year apart, they're on the same trajectory, both jumping from WCW to the WWF. This feud with Mero though, is going to carry Hunter through the fall of the year. Uh, what's the hope of putting these two guys together? Is it, Hey, it gives Mero a, a credible heel, someone who's established. I mean, obviously these guys were familiar with each other from WCW and, and both well-respected in their own right. But was there something about their chemistry that you guys had seen, or is it just, Hey, we know we need to get this guy over and Hunter can do the job. Well, first of all, uh, we realized that Mark, Mark Merrow's star was shining brighter because of, of a sable, right? You know, she was getting huge ovations and she kept by the audience and all those good, all those good th- descriptors. And the other thing, and, and I. I think Mark Merritt to this very day is one of the nicest, uh, and, uh, a good Christian man as anybody has ever been in the business. He does a great job of motivational speaking. He's a good human being. Uh, he was, would be a good addition to the locker room. And like I said, you know, when, when Vince and I met with Mark Merrow and, and say, well, just came to the meeting with their husband. And I, we, the meeting disperses, I get them in their cars and they're, they're going back to the airport. I get back in my office, my phone's ringing It's VKM. And he says, did you see what I saw? I said, I think I did her. She was a star. We had never seen a female that captivated our attention that stood out so prominently and in a good way as a, a sable. But the issue was, was that Sable was able to 
disguise some of Mark's in-ring deficiencies. You know, you didn't come out of WCW as, uh, you know, uh, the, one of the funks, right. <laughs> but he said he was still learning. So again, you go to the guy that could have matches with anybody. And that was triple H. So that was one of the reasons they got booked because we had high hopes for marrow and, and largely because as I've outlined, uh, Sable, it was a, it was a package deal and they were both very good at their, their end of the presentation. And she was greener than grass, you know, come on. She hadn't, she has never, she'd never done anything like this. She had grown and up in a wrestling family. She had been, you know, she had been isolated from the business. She hadn't really had an interest in, in getting involved. It didn't seem like, cause I got to believe that if, if knowing Eric as creative as he uh, is, if he had known Sable, then maybe I'm wrong here. I can't imagine him passing over her. If he knew she was available and had an interest in working. Can't, I think he would have missed the, missed the vote on that deal. Well, before we get to, uh, what's going to happen with Mark Merrow and Hunter, we got to address some things that happened after WrestleMania over in Europe. Of course, it's tradition in this era. Once WrestleMania is in the books, we're going to head across the pond and Meltzer would say, quote, lots of things went on when you pack two dozen wrestlers and keep them together for a 17 day tour, as you can imagine. Diesel and Ramon were flagrantly breaking every company rule. They could in full view of everyone. There was tremendous heat on Michaels and Helmsley in particular. Of course, in this point, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash have already given notice they're leaving. They're going to WCW. So they no longer think the rules apply to them. Cause what are they going to do? Punish us. We're leaving. Mm-hmm. And it's gotta be hard from a, uh, talent relations standpoint to manage talent like this. And it's happening thousands of miles away. Yeah. You know, in hindsight, Conrad, uh, we shouldn't have booked razor and diesel on that tour. Agree. Uh, just shouldn't have done it. And, uh, so somebody's out there listening saying, well, why did you, well, it was giving the audience in, in Europe, the best card that we could. Those guys have got an enormous amount of positive television time. Uh, the word was out that they were leaving. So for some, from mar- markability standpoint, a lot of the fans realize this is, this may be the last time looks like it might be pretty sure that they're going to be seen on a WWE card. And it was for a long, long time. So, uh, but in hindsight, I probably would have suggested the, the events that we not send them over there because it's just the option or the opportunity to have so many negative things come out of it existed. But, uh, again, the logic was let's give them our best card. These guys are two massive stars and they were, uh, but you know, you can't foresee the unprofessional conduct and attitude that apparently, uh, permeated. I got calls every, I can't remember who the agents by that, that in that deal, who, who they were, uh, I think Jerry Briscoe was on that show and I got, you know, and all the, whoever the agents were, I got calls every day. Well, here's what, here's the latest. And you know, they're old school guys and they're even ahead head of old school than I, they've been around longer. They're older. Right. And I'd shake my head and I can only imagine how they're dealing with it. Cause you got a lot of guys on there that knew that the conduct was just wrong. 
and that's not how they were raised. That's not how they, but those guys had, they had all the leverage. They, they had a great rapport with the old man. Uh, they were, uh, they were associated with Sean, who was our best worker. And they were associated with triple H who was on his way to becoming one of our very top guys. So it was a rock and hard spot scenario. If we had had more depth, I'm sure that booking could have been amended, but we didn't. That's what one of our goals were in talent relations to start signing new guys, training new guys. And I think we accomplished that over time, but we didn't have a magic fix for it at that very moment. So he just went with what you had best on the roster. And that's what you took on the road for 17 days. Well, it's obvious that this sort of behavior isn't going to be the last time we're going to see it. We're just a few weeks away from the curtain call. Of course, we've covered that topic to death in the archives, uh, over at grillajr.com. Ultimately though, Helmsley's the guy who's uh, sort of low man on the totem pole, and he's going to be the one who's quote unquote punished. Supposedly when all the backlash happens from that event, uh, Hunter has a, a sit down with Vince and Vince says something like. Uh, you're going to have to learn to, uh, eat a lot of shit and, and like the taste of it. Mm-hmm. I've been told that myself a few times. You have to, you have to acquire the, he told me it was like drinking scotch. JR, do you like scotch? You know, events I've never developed a taste for scotch. I'm more of a crown Royal guy myself. He said, well, uh, in your job, you're going to have to learn to eat a lot of shit. So you're going to acquire the taste. Uh, like you would, if you were trying to learn to like scotch. Wow. And, uh, and he was right. You know, uh, it was a, that I, I, I will say even, I don't even, I don't even know who has this, that job nowadays there. Uh, but it's a, it's a thankless fucking job. I think it's Johnny ace again. Really? Okay. Well, it's only what goes around comes around, right? Yep. What's all this new again. Yeah. Uh, and I hope he does well. Uh, you know, one of, one of my original hires, I hired him to be my assistant and, uh, he, he parlayed that opportunity into a real good run there. Where he's, I'm sure he was making great money and I'm sure he's making good money now. So, uh, but it was just hard Connie, of uh, uh, dealing with some of those issues. So part of the resurrection of a talent roster is. Let's not just look at someone's athletic abilities. Let's look at what kind of human being they are and what kind of locker room, what kind of teammate are you going to be? And to me, that was a important, uh, work ethic and all those things. That was one of the things I've hung my hat on hiring Mick Foley. He's like triple H. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs and the boys liked him. He was respected. So, uh, and that's the kind of people we want to try to bring in. And then we started training people. Those are the kind of, that's some of the uh, traits that we wanted to share and to teach younger talents, how to conduct yourself around your peers and your teammates. And so sometimes it's just overlooked and uh, under undervalued and it shouldn't be. Let's talk about in your house, beware of dog Helmsley is going to be working with Mark Miro here. Of course, this is the famous show where the power went out. They had a pretty good match, or at least that's what we hear. Uh, and then we see that Jake is going to pin triple H in the king of the ring qualifier match. 
Now I'm mentioning this because it feels as if the story has been told a hundred times. Supposedly Helmsley was the guy earmarked to win the king of the ring, 1996. Now, of course the business is better because that didn't happen. Stone yeah, Cold, Stone Cold Steve Austin winds up winning. Austin 316 is born, and we're off to the races. We got lucky, man. Yeah. We backed into fate with, uh, I thought that punishment bullshit was weak. I'm not saying it wasn't punishment. I'm just saying it was, there was the punishment necessary. Why do you punish one guy for the, uh, acts and the, and the, uh, conduct of his buddies? who aren't even there any longer. Why don't we move on? And the, the, the triple H had done nothing to be punished for other than he picked the wrong friends. Right. Really? Do you agree or disagree? I agree. So, but he still got to have to stay after school and sit in the corner and all these other, uh, analogies that one could come up with. And, but why? So, uh, but at the end of the day, the lucky part was guess who won the king of the ring and guess who got over like a million bucks and made the company more money than any other wrestler we had that Vince had had there, uh, maybe since the heyday of Hogan, but the timing of this, I mean, check this out. The end of July it's reported in the observer that Hunter signed a three-year deal. And now since he's re-signed, it's expected that he's going to get his push going again. That's all Dave Meltzer's theory. But let's just add the context for what we're talking about. He, he does the curtain call thing. Two of his very best friends leave for more money and fewer dates and go to WCW where they had both been before Hunter could have very easily done the exact same thing, been the next member of the NWO and been a part of some big stuff that's happening on the other channel. Mm-hmm. I mean, in early July, Hulk Hogan joins the NWO. Now, nobody still knew exactly how big this thing was going to get, but still it's reported at the end of July that he had signed. So you got to think there was at least a conversation between him and Scott or him and Kevin, but ultimately, even though he's been wrestling hog matches and he's been wrestling the dumpster guy and he's been squashed at WrestleMania and he's no longer the king of the ring, he re-signs. Are you, are you having conversations with him uh, in this era or have you ever yeah. talked to him about this and why he didn't go? Because WWE was always his destination. Conrad, we established that early in this podcast today. He grew up watching it. He's trained by a WWE hall of fame legend. It, and he grew up in that area. Uh, it just meant more to him to be in WWE than anywhere else. That was a perfect home for him. And he knew that if he weathered all the storms as he had and came through in a, in a championship way as a professional, that the, the, the end story was going to be very positive for him. And it worked out that way. He didn't, he didn't, he always kept, as I said, reinventing and working his ass off. Uh, and even though he didn't get the best hand dealt him, uh, all the time. It's fascinating to me. Let's talk about what's next for him. Uh, the intercontinental title is vacated when Ahmed Johnson is hurt. So triple H loses in the first round to Sid after Mr. Perfect, uh, manages to take triple H's model and that distracts him. And it looks like perfect and Helmsley are going to start feuding together. But of course, in this era, Mr. Perfect is just really primarily doing commentary on superstars, mm-hmm. but I think it felt like they were going to set something up here. 
And it's always been speculated that perfect had an insurance policy that was still active from the Lloyds of London. And if he returned, it was going to be a big issue. Uh, but along the way, um, Helmsley loses to stone cold, Steve Austin at buried alive on pay-per-view. It's a match that Meltzer said was three and a quarter stars and a good match. And it's kind of ironic, I guess that Helmsley's, uh, wrestling the actual king of the ring. I mean, the original plan was this was supposed to be flip-flopped, but here we are. Mm -hmm. But the storyline gets back on track when Hunter begins to challenge Mr. Perfect to a match on raw. Perfect is warming up and Hunter attacks his knee with a cart and perfect request that Mark Mero defend his honor. Of course, the dastardly perfect proves that it's all been a ruse and he helps Helmsley pin Mero with a chair shot. And now Helmsley is the intercontinental champion for the very first time. Man, what a story it was to get here. And, and we used Mr. Perfect. Of course, we know Mr. Perfect's not going to be long for this world. He's going to ultimately leave and jump ship to WCW, but man, a long-term combination of Mr. Perfect and Hunter that could have been badass. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, Hunter would have learned so much of Kurt, good things and bad things. Uh, you know, Kurt was a great river and you know, the life of the party. Uh, and, uh, I, I had as much fun work with him as on a broadcast on broadcasts, plural, uh, as anybody I can think of off the top of my head. He was funny. He was glib. He was, he, he had product knowledge. that was exceptional. He learned so much in the AWA years and growing up as uh, Larry, the Axe's son. Uh, so, you know, those second generation guys, things just come more naturally to them sometimes because it's the, it's the, it's the nomenclature of what they're used to. It's what they hear at the breakfast table. You know, that's what they hear. And I know Kurt was very close to his dad. Uh, one of the most things memorable things I remember about Kurt was when I, uh, debuted at WrestleMania nine, uh, Kurt flew his dad out, uh, to spend the weekend in Vegas. And I thought that was classy because it showed again, good parenting. And even though Kurt was as uh, chief Jay Strongwood called it, Dennis, the menace, uh, was one of the, he cared about his father a great deal. And I thought that meant something to me. And, uh, that's where I've met the ax as a matter of fact, and we became friends then and we're friends until his death. At the uh, survivor series, what an interesting moment. This is going to be sort of a, a peek into the future. You got crush Jerry Lawler, gold dust and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. What a group of hall of famers that is. And across the ring from them will be Jake Roberts, Barry Windham, Mark Marrow, and a debuting Rocky Maivia. Of course, uh, Hunter winds up getting pinned by Mark Marrow, but it's kind of fascinating to think looking back. Knowing what 98 and 99 and 2000 and on and on are going to look like this marriage of Rocky and Hunter literally starts with Rocky's very first match. Yeah. And boy, they had great chemistry. Yeah. They had great chemistry and two of our young studs, young stars. This was kind of what we all, uh, in the talent relations area and under Vince's leadership were wanting. This is a kind of athlete. These are the kinds of men. Uh, that had a something special to offer. And I think it's safe to say Conrad that, uh, both triple H and the rock had a lot to offer that was special and unique and, uh, and things that helped make them global stars. 
So this is exactly where we wanted to be in, in the talent relations office and in that area. And, you know, there's, there were stumbles and fumbles and, you know, right. Die, Rocky die and all these things because we pushed him too hard. We were force feeding the rock and a lot of the fans again, having product, more product knowledge than any of their predecessor fans. Uh, they, they looked at it as they were being forced to like this guy. And they didn't want to be forced to like anything. They wanted to be able to accept it and learn to like it on its own merits and not because of the hype machine. But, uh, yeah, that was a lot of, there was some good talents there, but you also see in that list, there are talents on there that we needed to move. We needed to move on. Right. And, uh, they either the fire had gone out, they'd found their comfort zones. Uh, they saw that they were, that probably had been on the tops of cards previously that they weren't going to be able to attain again, more than likely. And so, uh, it wasn't the hunger and the competitive nature that, uh, that certainly that I wanted to create and, uh, to have a friendly competition where guys want to be, they all want to be in the top spot. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, it was, a, that was a really, that booking is a very unique booking. We could, we could evaluate, we could do a show just on that booking and the people involved in that match. Uh, uh, quite easily because they all had unique stories to tell. Yeah. They're all, they're all different. There are different points in their career and all these things. So, uh, but I, I, I always, uh, I, I, I think that, that was, that match had a lot of, uh, credence and it had a bigger story to tell than just who got pinned by who and who was in the match, et cetera, et cetera. To close the year, Hunter is at the, uh, in your house. It's time event down in Florida is going to be hitting on Marlena, which is going to lead to gold interfering in the Mero Helmsley intercontinental match. And that allows Mero to get the count out victory. Not long after this Hunter is going to acquire the services of Mr. Hughes as a heater. Mm-hmm. How did Mr. Hughes come into play? Well, it was just good casting. I think he was fresh, uh, imposing looking big guy, uh, and he filled the role. You want to, you want a bodyguard kind of a guy, the heater He's a bodyguard. He's a, he's a, he's a, an asset that a wrestler could use when, when times got tough and challenging that could bail his ass out. And, uh, and Curtis didn't have to talk. He just had to be big and impressive. And he was, and he's gone on to train a lot of really good talents. And he's got a wrestling school there in Atlanta. And, uh, I used to kidding him all the time. He played defensive tackle for Kansas state. And at that time they weren't very good. Of course, I remind him of that every day because my centers were doing pretty good. And they, so we, we were calling Kansas state. So the wildcats were calling the mild cats and he and I still laugh about that, but he, Curtis, a good guy. Funny story about Curtis after WrestleMania nine, I think we're, uh, in the, in the subsequent televisions, we were in the, uh, uh, departure lounge in Phoenix. Now I was sitting there getting ready to fly back to Connecticut to do voiceovers and so forth. Sitting there talking with uh, chief Jay Strongbow and his wife who were there for the WrestleMania festivities and, uh, and the chief elbows me and says, look at that. Just look at that across the way, other side of the, the aisle, so to speak was uh, Mr. Hughes, the sound asleep in his chair. And so Strongbow automatically assumed that Curtis had been partying and was still high. Well, we found out later on that Curtis had, uh, the sleep 
disorder where he could fall asleep in <laughs> anywhere. He was, he had narcolepsy. Yeah. And, and, and thank you. And, and, uh, I can't even spell that for God's sakes. Uh, but he, he couldn't wait to tell Vince. So, you know, Vince, what are you going to, you know, you can check into this. Right. I did. And I talked to Curtis and I don't think he even could spell narcolepsy, but he had it. And, uh, but he did, he was never an issue ever. Uh, and so anyway, this little story is like that popping your head and you're thinking about these things, but he's, uh, the, the issue I thought it was a nice element again, triple H being willing to get out of his, his tails, uh, to go from the female, a company you know, ballet type thing to, uh, Mr. Hughes far from as sexy female as you could get probably, uh, and willing to try different things to improve his triple H's game and his presentation. And a lot of guys, like I said earlier, they just wouldn't do it. Their ego wouldn't allow them to do it. They weren't willing to be bold and try new things, but he was always willing to do that. And I think it, as, as time went on, those that type things, uh, pave the way for his hall of fame career. Well, we're going to finish up in Puerto Rico and little do we know that, uh, China is about to debut and change his career in so many ways, I guess his life too. I mean, 1997 is going to be a breakout banner year for Hunter Hearst Helmsley. He's going to have featured programs. He's going to get, you know, of course the association with China, he's going to win the king of the ring. DX is going to be created and, uh, man, he is off to the races. That's about the time we got rid of that three-year contract and redid another contract. It's pretty and remarkable. So, yeah. Well, that was, uh, that was things that I did in the talent relations that weren't normal courses of business where you would say, well, we got to get this guy to finish his contract. Then we'll do something for him. See, I, I always thought that was not, just, why not do it now? Right. And, uh, and Vince is all for it. He just, that's not something that we had customarily done. That's why when I started, we started this podcast today. I, I, re, I always vividly remember sitting on that anvil case in the back of that arena in Evansville, which wasn't exactly the garden and, uh, it did a new contract. Now he's validated. Now he knows how badly he's wanted and maybe more importantly, how much he's valued as a main event level guy. And I know talking to him about that, his biggest concern, well, it seemed like his biggest concern was, am I getting the best deal? Am I at the level that you guys are saying that I am? And that puts me, uh, on a, uh, par with Austin and taker and all these guys making them a, a million dollar downside. Right. The, the irony of that deal is that most of the guys that are on those million dollar downsides and they were healthy and they're getting booked a lot. Dennis is, you know. Was what it was sometimes great. And sometimes, uh, you know, solid, uh, was that, you know, they, he, he, they didn't take the weekly checks. So in other words, if you divide a million by 52, that's 19 and change a week. And, and, but a lot of guys didn't take their, that, that guaranteed check. So at the end of the year, you know, they, they, they were just getting these, they weren't getting their payoffs. They weren't getting the, it was all going against their downside. Right. So, uh, 
and he just wanted to make sure that he was on a level with Steve and Taker and some of these other guys that were making a million a year. And there weren't a lot of them. There weren't a lot of them. I, the irony of that deal is I remember doing a little internal audit, so to speak. And we had a handful of guys, Conrad, just a, I mean, a small handful of guys that were taking, they were making a million dollar downside, but on at one point in time, one year, we had, uh, I think 20 guys or maybe a little bit more that were making over a million out earning their downside, their downside guarantee for a guy like Chris Jericho to come in and get paid three or three fifty, Then almost immediately, because he's durable and he's on the house show runs, uh, and book frequently, he was already, he was making over a million dollars a year, almost from the beginning, uh, and, and, uh, and, and just, you know, this, that was a normal course of business back in those days, but there was something about getting that, that feel that I am being paid as much as anybody on the team. And that's what I think triple H was always working for was that being able to be recognized as one of our very top level guys in that group of top level guys, he finally had arrived with that check or that, uh, excuse me, that, that, uh, that number on his, uh, on his check. So interesting. I, I, I those are good days because you see the formation of a guy that's going to be around forever. And obviously he's going to be around forever. So it was, it was some fun times. You like seeing guys realize their dreams and their goals. And, you know, and a lot of the guys is funny. I would say, well, congratulations on a great year. You made, you know, 1.3 million. I did. Yeah. You know, uh, or some of those same guys making over a million a year forgot to file taxes mm. and that happens occasionally. So IRS, I always say, man, uncle Sam don't do no jobs and he don't, he goes over every friggin' time. Well, we're hoping not to do any jobs here on the show. We're uh, wrapping up this week's episode, but before we do, we've got a couple of fan questions. Let's get to it. Lindsay wants to know, did triple H ever have a comment about you guys making fun of his nose on commentary? Uh, not that I recall probably was another, uh, if I had to do over again, probably wouldn't have, but if he was the heel, then, then that's kind of the, the motivation for it. You know, obviously, uh, I don't recall ever making fun of his nose when he was a baby face. Right. Uh, but he just took it good, good. Good stead, so no, no, no issues. Jay- it, it was what it was, for God's sakes. Jason wants to know when was the decision made for him to drop the accent? I always heard it was after Mister Perfect nicknamed him Triple H. Could have been about that time. You know, Kurt had a great outlook and a sense of uh, what would work and what wouldn't work as far as characters are concerned, and especially heel characters. Uh, just the feel thing for for uh, Kurt. But I would, I would say that's probably about right. You know, uh, it seems like it's about that era for sure. And, and God almighty, what a much better deal. What a, what a better name than, you know, having to go through as an announcer, going through the whole Hunter Hearst Helmsley thing, triple H is so much easier to pronounce. And as we all know, with my track record of mispronouncing names, misidentifying companies <laughs> and all those things, I need all the help I can get even back then. Uh, one last one, Instagram, a wrestling historian says, I loved watching Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Do you think he could have been WWF champion as the blue blood persona? Uh, probably could have, but he wasn't ready. Right. Could he have been as hey, look, this thing's booked in pencil. 
Right. So you get your racer out and you put him at the top of the car. That's kind of how that works sometimes, but it wasn't, it wasn't time for him to do that. We knew he was going to get there, but he was going to get there in, in the right pace, the right time to where we didn't have that die Rocky die backlash. People accepted him for his hard work. Look, uh, during the attitude era, if you discount Vince, uh, you know, triple H was as viable as any heel we had, I mean, his matches with Foley were un- unforgettable met rock Austin. He, he danced a step for step with every top guy we had during that era and, uh, and did a hell of a job, but he could, yeah, he could have been champion. Anybody could be champion Conrad. Hell, you know that, uh, and a lot of them are willing to sell their belts. I see them over your left shoulder. <laughs> well, so we're not a big, big sentimental thing. We're hoping to sell you some sauce over at, uh, jrsbbq.com. Uh, before you know it, the seasoning will be back. And you teased us last week, red ass JR, the hot sauce is coming your way, but right now in stock and ready to go main event, mustard, chipotle ketchup. And of course, two different versions of the sauce, the original and the spicy something for everybody at jrsbbq.com. Right, Jim. Yes, sir. Conrad. And the, another piece of news, as far as the seasoning is concerned, the seasoning, as we record this, was scheduled to be delivered uh, to our little warehouse here in Norman on uh, the 28th of uh, August, which is also my uh, younger youngest daughter, Amanda's 40th birthday. And uh, so, and we have two sizes. We're gonna, we're, that's one thing we're rolling out. We got a, a the traditional smaller size that we've had and one that's almost twice as big. So you can buy a bigger container. So in other words, if you being the devotee of, uh, of our, of our seasoning, for example, for your home kitchen, you could buy a big bottle because you use it a lot. Right. And you, and you may want to think about, well, you know, so I, you know, I'm going to get so-and-so a gift. I'm gonna give some of JR sauce or his, his seasoning. And you buy a smaller bottle for them to try. And if they like it, they'll thank you for their gift. They'll be happy. They got it. They'll use the hell out of it. And then when they get back into reordering, they may want to get the big bottle like you got. So that's going to be available any, any day. And we'll make a big deal out of it on, uh, on our site and we'll social media and all those good things. And then, uh, I, uh, the one nice thing about being able to spend time between AEW tapings here in Oklahoma is I could be more active and more involved in our product. And so we're trying to move the, uh, the, uh, red ass JR hot sauce along a little quicker and, uh, you know, make decisions. You got to make, you're going to have a glass bottle, Conrad. You're going to have a plastic bottle. Is the plastic bottle going to be dark or is it going to be clear, uh, size wise, all these things. And I'm not big on, uh, I put the claw bosh on the, on the glass bottle scenario. Because it's, you're asking for clean up on all three and that's not cool. And, and, and the glass weighs more, right? So it affects shipping, right? Things like that. You know, it's gotta, you got, it's gotta be addressed. So we're uh, getting very close to being fully staffed, so to speak with all of our products. JRSBBQ.com is the, uh, place to look. I use this all the time. I believe it. It's a uh, good to, uh, it costs nothing to look. So check it out and we appreciate your business 
And uh, it's never not grilling season. Never, ever not grilling season. Do you turn your grill on this weekend? Every weekend. <laughs> Me too, man. Me too. I had a tragedy, almost a near tragedy with my grill. My housekeeper was here. I said, be sure uh, this last week, I said, be sure to clean the grill. Cause I hadn't been here in a couple of three months. And I said, and I want to use the grill while I'm home. So she gets in there, discovers a wasp nest. Oh no. Yeah. She got stung twice. Oh, so bless her heart. So, uh, she's on the IR. <laughs> Get the checkbook out, JR. <laughs> but uh, there's all kinds of funny shit that comes up in those deals. But uh, we're 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 doing good. It's coming together, Conrad. And you know, I appreciate your support and all the guys on Ad Free that talk about it from time to time. And it's all much appreciated. And we're having a lot of fun over at AdFreeShows.com as well. You get all of our episodes early and ad free, including special bonus content you can't get anywhere else. Tons of interactive experiences. Uh, and next week we'll be back with ask Jr. anything. If you've got a question for Jim and we mean anything, uh, you can ask it right now on our Twitter. It's at Jr. grilling at Jr. grilling, or of course, over at adfreeshows.com. We'll collect your questions there. We've got quite a month planned for you. Terry Taylor coming up the week after that. And we are off to the races until next week. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. He is at Jr's BBQ and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on grilling Jr. With the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Heavy on the mission, big boy. And don't forget the studio sessions on the ad free network. My old radio shows from WSV AM 750 in Atlanta. Conrad's got all of them. And uh, we're getting some great feedback on that. Uh, 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 talking to guys that they were like, they may have been two or three characters before their final character. And live talk, it was just fun. And so check that out. Uh, that's another great reason that the ad free network's the only way to go. So until next week, Conrad, we'll, we'll talk about the red rooster and, and all that. He's the guy that bill Watts said one time in, uh, on a hot finish going off the air, Terry Taylor is double hung. <laughs> and I'll tell you next week, what double hung meant. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye-bye. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.